you for tuning into episode number nine of The Virtual Couch, and we have a really big guest today. I cannot wait to get to that. But I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, ultramarathon runner, father of four, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that will help you or someone you love break free from pornography addiction and compulsive sexual behavior and give you or them the life that you or they always dreamed they could have. So for more information on The Path Back, please visit pathbackrecovery.com. And I want to thank you again just so much for continuing to send wonderful feedback on the podcast. And thank you to those who have subscribed on iTunes, who have given five-star reviews, and for those who have taken the time to, to even write a nice review. If you like the podcast, I would appreciate it if you haven't already done, done so, to subscribe, rate, um, leave a nice review on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast, And please feel free to share this on your social media, on your Facebook page, on the Twitter, and anything else that I now have missed as an old man who is not keeping up with social media. Um, the reality is that, that if putting on a quality podcast does cost a little bit of money. There's some hosting fees, equipment, that sort of thing. So if you like what you hear, and, and if you're in a position to do so, um, please consider heading over to virtualcouch.xyz. Let that one sit there. That that is honest to goodness. Um, the domain that's the, the domain that I bought the the URL when I saw that there is a legitimate .xyz. I couldn't pass on that. So um, if you head over to virtualcouch.xyz, uh, you will see all of the Virtual Couch podcasts there that you can play. Um, again, I would highly encourage you to go to iTunes, subscribe. Um, the truth is iTunes still, uh, latest research shows that about 70% of people get their podcasts through iTunes. So those ratings, those reviews kind of help bump us up in the charts and get us in front of more people. And, uh, and ultimately, um, that's, uh, that's what I'm passionate about. I love doing the podcast. I love the feedback and I love helping people. And as a therapist, you can only help the people that are here in front of you. Every now and again, I get a chance to speak. Um, but I really love this forum of the podcast. So I would love to continue to be able to um, provide quality content and, and bring it to the masses. So if you're in a position, head over to virtualcouch.xyz. And if you scroll down, uh, down the page a bit, there's a donate now button. And any amount from a dollar to a million dollars would be greatly appreciated. Um, actually, the million dollars, if you do something like that, I I think that's one of those where I think I will need to maybe rename the podcast after you or I'll buy you um, a domain and, and maybe post some cool thing about you every day. Um, I think that's fair enough for a million bucks, right? Eli's Extracts. Eli's makes a complete line of organic, all-natural shaving creams for head, face, legs, wherever you feel so inclined to shave. Just head over to Eli's-Extracts. That's E-L-I-S-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S.com. And check out their entire product line. All of their shave creams smell incredible. They've been scented using the essences of a variety of tropical fruit essential oils. I've been using Eli's on my big bald head for a couple of years now, and I will never go back to anything else. Uh, use the coupon code VIRTUALCOUCH, all one word, and check out, and you'll get 25% off your entire order. Okay, that is all of the business. So I wanted to get through that information as quickly as possible so I could get to our guest on the show today. I had an opportunity to interview the host of one of the top podcasts on iTunes, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. And I love the name alone, um, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. The host is Paul Gilmartin. And, and I want to 
tell you, I know this interview may cover some ground that we haven't really covered yet on the virtual couch, meaning that this is more of a deep dive into the issues surrounding mental health. A lot of the comments so far that I've received have been from people that are new to podcasts, uh, even people that are new to therapy, or just kind of exploring mental health. And I've tried to put a a nice, you know, I'm a very strength-based, positive, optimist, uh, glass is half full kind of guy, try to bring a little bit of humor in there as well. And Paul, uh, and I'll, I'll talk more about this in a bit, but he is a, a professional comedian. He is hilarious, but he's also very open about his struggles with clinical depression, uh, suicidal thoughts, that sort of thing. And so I just feel like he brings such a nice um, a nice mix of reality and humor to his podcast, but he covers a lot of really, really deep topics. So Paul... Um, he goes deep. His podcasts go extremely deep. And Paul will talk more about how and why he started the Mental Illness Happy Hour. But he's recorded over 350 episodes, I think 351 um, when I interviewed him. And in those episodes, he's interviewed a who's who of well-known comedians, actors, musicians. He's talked to therapists like myself, psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh, he's spoken with people who have survived horrific um, family trauma, people who have serious clinical depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, PTSD, sexual abuse. You name it. Um, He has done a tremendous job in providing a resource that normalizes so many of the things that the clients that I work with are dealing with. And so many of these clients come to me feeling completely alone and isolated. So while the topics are heavy, and and I'm I'm telling you, I send clients there at times when they are struggling with a particular um, thing, disorder, um, emotional uh, set of circumstances that I know that Paul has covered. And also as a clinician, I go there often to just get additional opinions and, uh, and find out resources on different things that I work with um, from time to time. But so his topics, again, heavy, uh, they can be sad, they can be hard to hear, um, but having people that are willing to open up about their own mental health struggles is just so incredibly powerful. And I think that that is kind of, you know, even underneath why I wanted to do a podcast so badly is just to continue to further the discussion about um, mental health, mental illness how everyone can use uh, another perspective of um, to help them out along life. And, and just to kind of know that a lot of the struggles that people are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, that they feel like they can't share or that they are alone in these struggles, that that is, is actually a huge part of the problem, is not being able to talk about these things and not being able to, to kind of have them out there in the, the public forum. And so Paul and I, um, we, we, we touch on that as well. And, uh, and I'm just so grateful for him taking the time to do this interview. And what makes the show, um, what makes the Mental Illness Happy Hour truly what it is, is Paul. As I mentioned, Paul's a comedian. He was a 16-year host of TBS's long-running Dinner in a Movie series, where he, a co-star and a five-star chef, would cook a meal that was typically themed around a movie that was playing on TBS. And then they basically improv coming in and out of breaks. And, and it was hilarious I used to watch it regularly um, earlier in my marriage before we had kids when my wife worked retail and I would be home alone and, and really not, not a lot to do. And I just loved um, that dinner and a movie and found him there. And then I also ran into uh, Paul just on various um, – I'm a fan of comedy. I really do. I love comedians. And uh, so I would listen to various radio shows. Actually, when I ran, you know, um, I, I had a Walkman for a while, but then I went to Japan one time on a business trip. This was in the 90s, I think. And I actually got this giant uh, radio 
headset that I could wear when I ran. And so I picked up on a couple of morning shows at that time that were that were local and uh, here in Sacramento. And Paul would come on, on as a guest star in some of those as well. So he has, um, as a stand-up, Paul has dozens of TV appearances, including um, NBC's uh, Late Friday, CBS's The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, and he's done his own half-hour Comedy Central Presents, which is um, aptly titled Paul Gilmartin. He's performed as a stand-up and a sketch actor at the Montreal Comedy Festival. Um, he studied at Second City. He's been at three times at the Aspen Comedy Festival, and most recently is his character, and, and this is one that I also ran into, and I didn't even know it was Paul for a while, but he has a character, Republican Representative Richard Martin, and I, I get Paul to talk just for a minute about him as well. Uh, just a really, really kind of a funny spoof or takeoff on um, on, uh, on a Republican representative. Uh, he's been a guest on Politically Incorrect, written for the Emmy Awards as well as for the Dennis Miller Show, and he's a frequent guest on the Bob and Tom Radio Show since 1991, and he does pretty funny poems that appear on many of their charity albums. So admittedly, when I reached out to Paul to ask him if he would be willing to come on the virtual couch, uh, i got to be honest, I assumed, as a new podcaster, that I wouldn't hear back from him. But he was so incredibly gracious and responsive, and I couldn't believe how quickly the time flew during our interview. And he was fantastic. And I have to tell you, um, you know, I love, I love what I do. I love my job. Um, I like to, I love to speak. I love to have that opportunity to kind of, um, again, help kind of bring this topic to to the um, to the crowds that I get to speak to. And uh, and when I do that, you know, sure, I'll get nervous and. And, uh, but then once I'm, I'm kind of talking or speaking, then I just really, I just love it. I love the energy to feed off of, off the crowd or wherever I'm speaking. But man, I was nervous to interview Paul. And, I, and it was just so funny. I think I had texted my wife two or three times of how nervous I was. But uh, boy, he made it easy. Um, he really did. And so um, I just felt like the, uh, the time flew by. It was a wonderful interview. I'm so grateful for him to take the time. So let's get to my interview with the host of the Mental Illness Happy Hour, Paul Gilmartin. If we, uh, if we can, okay, so I'm already recording, and I'll I'll edit this first part out. But I'm going to go and do a little bit of uh, an intro, and and basically spend a good couple of hours going over your uh, Wikipedia page. Is that fair? Sure. <laughs> okay. Hey. So, uh, all right. My uh, my guest is Paul Gilmartin. Paul is a popular stand-up comedian. A TV personality, and uh, and I think many people will remember you from longtime host of TBS's Dinner and a Movie. Do you do you still get recognized by that a lot, Paul? Every once in a while, yeah. every once in a while, you know, I'm a little fatter and a little older than uh, I looked when I was on the show, but um, yeah, some some people occasionally will uh, will recognize me. Gotcha. And and I'm you know I am so excited to talk to you about your podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Um, and before we even get to that, though, back to I was a dinner and a movie fan, and so I decided to do a little deep dive on you, Paul. And I went on YouTube to see if I could find any good clips. And uh, I'm curious if you remember um, making pigs' feet. Do you remember that I one? I do. I do. I'm trying to remember what movie that was for. Oh, uh, gosh! You even referenced it in the clip that's on YouTube. Um, I'm drawing a blank, though, but. Uh, but you know the the pig speed. By the end, um, Claude made it look pretty good. I mean, did, what was? Yeah. I mean, did you like most of the things that you guys cooked? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the ninety nine percent of the stuff that he made was was great. And if it was ever something that I didn't like, it's that I didn't like the ingredient it was being made with. Not that, not the way he made it. Yeah, he was an amazing cook. There, you know, there was times I was sitting down and eating something and the camera is rolling and I'm thinking I'm being paid 
to eat five star food and make jokes. This it, is crazy. That, that the kid doesn't get better than that, right? Um, yeah. Hey, so do, and do you remember anything in particular that was? Uh, I mean, the pig's feet was was kind of unique. Anything else that comes to mind? Oh my God, so many different things. I remember not being too crazy about goat. Okay. Um, I remember not wanting to eat bugs. Uh, I remember being surprised by how good tongue tacos were. Wow. Um, yeah, some of the best tacos I've ever had. Um, you know, and if I'm remembering right, too, that was about that sweet spot where Fear Factor was big and people were eating a lot of bugs and intestines and that sort of thing. I mean, did you guys, did, did you feel like you had to go down that path at times? I don't think so. I think Claude is just always the, he, he was the chef on the show and he, uh, has always been an adventurous person. And honestly, what drove things more than anything was the title of the, of the dish. So, uh, he would find a title first and if it made us laugh or it seemed, you know, like it was a great title, uh, then he would figure out what the recipe was going to be. So that, that drove it more than anything. Gotcha. Hey, and while we're kind of, uh, are you okay if we spend a little time here with food? Is that okay? Yeah. Are you much of a, do you consider yourself a foodie? Um, yeah, yeah, I am. I, I, uh, it's funny. I cooked a lot. Excuse me. Oh my God. Yeah. That's good. On an interview to be yawning. <laughs> um, I, uh, used to cook a lot. Then I started doing dinner in a movie and I totally stopped maybe because I was doing it for a living. But, um, then about uh, a year ago, uh, a sponsor um, sponsored our show, um, Blue Apron, yeah. okay. and I started cooking for myself again and remembered uh, how good it felt. And it's also a way to, for me to slow down, do something nice for myself, um, and it's nice to not have to go to the grocery store. So I'm back into it, but um, I'm not cooking outside of the the meals that get delivered uh, much. But I'm I'm learning a lot because uh, I don't have to. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not spending three quarters of my brain power trying to think of a joke about a movie. So <laughs> right. I'm paying attention. Yeah, yeah and, and I think that, and I want to get to, and we'll get to some mindfulness stuff a little bit uh, later in the interview. But I can imagine cooking and food prep. I mean, my wife feels like cutting vegetables is the most therapeutic thing that she can do. I mean, do you That's do great. Yeah. You like that? The, the food prep part? Um, I don't, okay. I don't, I like how it feels when I sit down, yeah. um, to eat and I'm just like, wow, I just, uh, did something good for myself. I, um, it, it feel, you know, it's kind of like when I make my bed, I feel like I'm taking care of myself and, um, spent so much of my life um, just distracting myself with compulsive behavior or addictions. Um, right. When I do something healthy for myself, it always feels good. You know, I have a I have a theory I use in my practice called the emotional baseline, and I feel like that is the the more things you do from a self care standpoint, it raises this emotional baseline, and everything that's coming at you on a day to day basis is going to come at you regardless of where you're at to face it. So whatever you can do to raise that baseline, uh, you're going to make a better decision. So I, I Absolutely. love right? And I love yeah. that uh, making the bed when you get up or, or even people that maybe aren't, uh, if they're out of work and they're setting an alarm clock just to be able to get up. I have women that will put on makeup. I guess men too, um, you know, the 2017s, right? 
So right. whatever it takes, though, to raise that baseline. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I love that. Hey, on the, and one more thing on the food. You've mentioned um, on several occasions you have used ice cream to self-soothe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's my go-to. So I'm, I'm dying to know what's your, what's your brand, what's your, you know, what do you like? I'm a Ben and Jerry's guy. Okay. And my new favorite is uh, Americone Dream. And uh, probably my all-time long favorite was uh, Fish Food. Uh, I also really like, there's a limited batch called uh, One Love, which is banana ice cream with uh, graham crackers, uh, fudge peace signs, and swirls of uh, caramel. That one's really good. Okay. Uh, But I haven't done it in about uh, three weeks. Uh, I was starting to get a little... uh, a little tubby there, and but more than anything, I knew I was I was uh, kind of numbing my feelings, yeah. and uh, that I ought to probably just go ahead and feel what it is I didn't want to feel. Okay, and, and so have you had? Do you feel like you is a, have you had a problem with therapeutic eating in the past? I mean, do you feel like that's really what that ice cream is, or or have you had other yeah. food related? You know, issues? A, a lot of times the place I'll go to to soothe myself is uh, video games, pornography. Uh-huh. Um, uh, those tend to be, those tend to be the, the kind of the go-tos, um, you know, it used to be drugs and alcohol, but I've been sober from that for about 14 years, which is, Uh, but I'll use anything. Uh, you know, there was a period of time when I was using, uh, the fantasy of, uh, shopping for land online, Mm. Uh, you know, just imagining myself on these big plots of land that I could never afford. Right. Um, and just, Anything to take me out of me is uh, will will do it. You know, I've collected guitars. I've collected uh, you know football cards. Yeah. I've uh, you know been obsessed with learning how to juggle. Um, you know, and then there are the healthy behaviors that I don't do compulsively, like playing guitar, playing hockey, uh-huh. um, uh, playing Scrabble, things like that. And those are, those are good, um, healthy behaviors that balance my life, but I'm not using to escape my life. Well, so, you know, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, um, the power of habit, Charles Duhigg, have have Mm -hmm. you heard of that one? So it's a good one. It's kind of the latest on uh, brain research around habits and and how they're formed. And, and he kind of makes the argument that in, in essence, we are all addicts and it's basically trying to find what that healthy addiction or that socially acceptable addiction mm-hmm. is. So kind of what you're talking to there, right? Yeah. Uh, on that yeah, note, you know, and I think I sent you uh, this in an email, but on that note, you were with me on a 63-mile run on Saturday, a couple of your podcasts. And, you know, oh. and, yeah, and uh, down in San Diego, I did, a, I did 100K down there. But, I mean, and a lot of that is it is a, you know, it's my socially acceptable healthy addiction that actually allows me to eat the ice cream. So, I mean, we're trying to cover it. I mean, uh, how do you how do you – you know, by the time I finish a four mile run, I think I can't do it. Yeah. How, how do you run a hundred K? How is that even possible? Yeah. You know, it's, it's so funny and I'm, I am so dying to interview you, but I mean, I appreciate that. I, I haven't even done a podcast about my, my ultra running yet uh, for myself. Um, but it really became this place where, uh, when I was doing half marathons and marathons, my legs would get to this point where they would give out and you hit this wall. Right. And yeah. then, uh, and then once you get in our, in their little ultra world, we talk about over a few years, you get these base miles on your body and it's almost like your body kind of says, Hey, don't, don't complain. Like this guy's going to do this no matter if we tell him that, you know, we're sore or not. And then at some point, um, it just becomes this amazing mental exercise where you don't just hit a wall. 
you get through the wall and then you get to the next wall and you know and so here I am at this uh, 100k and I've got my my wife and my second oldest daughter pacing me the last 18 miles and it's in the dark and we're on trails and we've got these headlamps and it, it is just it is an amazing feeling and then every now and again your legs say hey can we quit you know and so I just I, I don't know I love that I love going to that place how um, many how many of the miles do your legs uh, uh, let's or how many of the kilometers uh-huh. are your legs saying let's quit you, you know that is so funny usually it's early on I'm playing this mental game where I want to ask everybody around me in the first you know 10 miles hey are your legs hurting are your legs hurting are your legs hurting yeah. but, the, but then I don't and then I feel like about 15 20 miles in that's just kind of what it is and, and you're just kind of settling in for the long haul so you actually accompanied me on a nine mile climb that uh, that was in the middle of the day it was about 90 degrees and it was exposed and I ran out of water and uh, oh my god yeah and then in those moments and I think that this is something I like to talk to uh, with my clients as well um, my wife is uh, she's a cyclist and she had told me training once that this uh, this cycling coach told her never make a you know an important decision while you're going uphill because when you're going uphill you are you are I'm done this is dumb why am I doing this it doesn't really matter you know all, all I get is a is a t-shirt and and I'm done and then as soon as you crest that peak and maybe even go on a little downhill then it's like this is the greatest you know I yeah, I feel in no, one with nature and and so I have clients that I feel like when they are just in those really tough spots or when they want to make those really difficult decisions um, or, or ones that are really going to affect them. Um, I mean, even to the point of when we're talking about people with suicidal ideation and uh, mm-hmm. trying to get them from not trying to make that decision when they're, when they're going up a hill. Yeah. Um, I mean, isn't that essentially what recovery is? Yeah. Because in the beginning you feel so hopeless. You yeah. believe, yeah, it worked for other people, yes. but I'm different. It's not going to work for me. The missing, whatever it is that you're, you know, your compulsive behavior or, um, you know, uh, substance was you, you, you will never feel the missing it as acutely as you will in the, in the beginning. And then before you know it, you got your legs underneath you. Yes. And then all of a sudden this view comes, comes in of your life, the world around you, your place in it. And you realize, oh my God, it, I'm so glad I stuck with it. Yes, that, no, that was perfect. And and it's funny, so I do a lot with uh, pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behavior. When I have guys that are coming in and they're going to lose uh, jobs, marriages, you know, you name it, and, and they come in and this is a coping mechanism they've been doing daily, you know, or multiple times mm-hmm. a day for who knows how long. And oftentimes they even say, okay, hey, I... I, I I guess we can get to the point where I'm not doing it as much and it's, but mm-hmm. they, they don't have any hope of, you know, putting those things kind of to bed for yeah. long periods of time. And, and, and I just want to like hug them and say, you know, tr- trust this process, right? I mean, yeah. you, you can do this. Um, yeah. It, it feels so real though, you know, especially, um, with sex or love addiction, because that, those drugs that are in your brain are more powerful, you know, than heroin and the pharmacy is open 24 hours and you know how to pick the lock. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's agonizing. You know, I know people in, uh, recovery from uh, sex and love addiction who, uh, have overcome uh, heroin addiction that said that, you know, heroin has nothing on sex and love addiction. So I'm doing some uh, some training for partners um, who have been through, you know, if their spouse has been a sex addict. So the, the trauma caused to partners. And just today, 
Um, we were on a training with Dr. Kevin Skinner, who's wrote a, uh, he's written a bunch of books about that, and he was talking exactly about uh, cocaine and you know the um, where the you know the, um, pornography addiction, the the part of the brain that that affects. Those those guys are best friends. I mean, they got rooms right next door to each other. So they do. Yeah. When you when you meet people in recovery whose primary drug was. Uh, coke or crack, mm-hmm. there is almost uh, always, uh, it seems like, a uh, acting out sexually went along with it. Yeah, yeah, which is just wild. That, that is. Um, the, uh, you know, I was going to say the other part to that um, with, the, with the addiction piece is um, when you have interviewed people, I mean, what are the biggest struggles that you see when people, you know, they have some sobriety underneath them and then they, they go off the wagon? Not knowing what their triggers are. Yes. Okay. And thinking that they can handle those triggers because they don't want to surrender more deeply to the reality mm-hmm. of the power that their addiction has over them. And it may just even be a case of you need to stay away from that thing for your first six months or a year. Yeah. Until you get some momentum going. But it's it, it's kind of like, you know, if we go back to that analogy of climbing the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, ignoring what your triggers are as you're climbing that mountain is like saying, well, you know, I'll, uh, I'll choose the path up the mountain that has the, uh, black bears running down at me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like now, dude, you got enough cut out for you. Um, but when we're in that place where we're in withdrawal and we're feeling so empty and our disease is just looking for any tiny bit of oxygen to breathe, it will take it anywhere it can get it. And that can just trigger that release of whatever the chemicals are and then wanting more of them. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I have to say, when I, when I went back to school, I was in computer software for a decade and that just wasn't, wasn't doing it. So I went back to, to kind of follow this, uh, this path to be a therapist. And I remember even on one of the first days of graduate school, my instructor said, you're going to get to a point where you have seen everything, you know, hundreds of times and you're going to want to just tell the person, just do this. But, you know, that's not where they're at. I mean, they, they, this is their journey. And, uh, and I feel like that with, um, with those triggers. So I, I, I work with clients and we try to identify trigger. And then there's this pattern, right? Trigger, thought, action. But once, <laughs> you know, we, we work with those triggers, once that thought comes, we're trying to put distance between thought and action. But I, I always use this phrase. Are you a Star Wars fan, Paul? Uh, I watched the first one, okay, but okay. I haven't seen much of the other ones. Well, just the, that concept of a tractor beam. I feel like, you know, if they've ignored the trigger and then there's the thought and we haven't put any distance between action, then you get locked into that tractor beam and then it's, yeah. you know, you're, 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 you're headed toward the, the action. So, yeah. And then I feel like at times all, all I am is, and I say this lovingly, but almost an excuse killer. So it's, you know, it's the people like you say that feel like, you know, I'm ignoring that trigger. That one's really not that bad. Or if that one comes mm-hmm. up, I'm not too worried. And then, I mean, I could, you know, I, I have so many thoughts that come to mind of, uh, I had this executive, corporate executive that was acting out in his uh, office. And so he had his, um, you know, his, his computer screen was facing away from the door. And so when we finally identified that as his go-to, you know, trigger, and then the thought and action, I'm like, hey, flip the desk around, right? And he's, well, I can't do that because then people will see confidential data on the screen of, you know, and I'm, you know, your 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 office is thirty feet long. I don't I don't think anybody has that good of a vision that they're going to be able to spot that. You know, flip that desk around and let's, uh, you know, let's knock that excuse down. So yeah, yeah, because 
it's a disease of thinking more than anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, hey, so I, I'll get back to the deep dive. I also thought I had never heard until I was really looking uh, the last couple of days that you were sitting there looking at, you were staring at pre-med. And, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, you would have been a very funny doctor, right? <laughs> I think I would have been a very unhappy doctor. But, <laughs> okay. um, you know, I've always loved science, but I, I just felt like um, there was something inside me that needed expressing and that I was just choosing that path because it seemed safe. And I thought, you know, I'm not married. I don't have kids. Mm-hmm. Um you know, my parents had always said, do something that you love. And, you know, usually the money will follow because you'll do it well. And um, so I, I changed my major. But, yeah, I was getting ready to take the MCATs. I was, wow. a, I was a junior in college and I had really good grades. But, yeah, something in, something in me snapped. <laughs> and then was that the you, – did you turn to stand-up at that point or was that you went into acting or was I – Theater. Theater. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I have to ask you as well, while, we're, while we mentioned the word doctor, have you watched the show The Good Doctor yet? I have not. Is it good? Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, you know, I love it. I work with a lot of high-functioning autistic clients, and so they're, you know, the, the guy is a high-functioning autistic doctor, and uh, I think it's, it's got some um, potential for some serious, you know, Saturday, Saturday Night Live skits. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, because he always does a nice look away and it seems like it's about five minutes while he's has this view of the body and what's going on. And I kind of feel like that might not be uh, so helpful for the patient. But uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would like, imagine there's more than a few doctors that are on the spectrum. And uh, really, you know, when that person is so vulnerable. Yeah. And I experienced this a lot as a kid because I had a lot of operations and stuff and some were on my genitals. And mm. it was, you know, getting a doctor that had no compassion or bedside manner was really traumatizing. Wow. Okay. Really traumatizing to me. You, you know, it's uh, – and I know this isn't maybe where I was planning on going, but, I, you know, so I do as a male therapist, I work with I, – I mean, I've lost track of the amount of uh, doctors, attorneys, CPAs, you know, all the good manly mm. jobs, right? And, and I have found there's, uh, there's, there's doctors on the spectrum, and then I also find that I work with a fair amount of um, people that uh, maybe have a nice little dose of a personality disorder, you know, a little sprinkling of narcissism in there, which... Oh, know, my God, yeah. That's, right? I have a friend who's a doctor, and he said, it, it is the number of surgeons that are uh, narcissists mm-hmm. is just stunning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I find, too. So I don't know, is that... Uh, chicken or the egg, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, can I ask you, uh, so this is a little bit, this is some of the stuff that I had, hey, if we had time, but when you talked about doing what you love and the money will follow, and, you know, mm-hmm. that's, you're a great example of that. I mean, I feel like I had to get to that point, and, and I love, absolutely love what I do. Um, I'm also a huge comedy nerd, and I love listening to interviews with comedians, and, and you know, that's how I found you back in the day. Um, in particular, when you were uh, doing a little bit of uh, Republican Representative Richard Martin, um, mm-hmm. was, and uh, um, which, by the way, uh, do you do you remember? I mean, obviously, the the tagline of uh, what was what his uh, I don't know his mission statement was. I mean, it always kind of cracked me up. Uh, was was it is an American neat or was it a different? What, <laughs> no, what, I love what? that one. I I had the one jotted down where you know hopes to spread uh, spread hope to suburban couples having trouble affording a second home. a second home. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. And then and then the line that's been added is I uh, 
I hope you never have to see a fella in an Adirondack chair lose the will to live. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I miss him. I do. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I miss him. Um, yeah. but, but so in a lot of those interviews, I would hear this concept of never have a plan B. You know, that these comedians or actors have said never have a plan B because then you'll fall back on that and you won't go after the, the plan A. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a personal decision for each person. Okay. Um, I think some people need that. And I think other people um, need the reassurance that if this doesn't work out, they can do something else. You know, just like some writers need a deadline. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm somebody that, you know, if I get a check from somebody to do a project, it will get done. If it's up to me to do it, uh, it's very up in the air uh, whether or not it'll it'll be done because I can I can procrastinate like nobody's business. So, um, yeah, for me, it was, it was kind of, I wasn't, I didn't have a plan B in mind, but that might've also been because I started achieving a decent amount of success out of the gate. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily because I was great. Uh, it was more because the time, uh, was the late eighties and comedy clubs were exploding and they needed comedians. So, um, I couldn't have picked a better time financially to get into comedy. Um, so, so I don't have much personal experience, uh, with thinking about that, but actually now that I think of it, my dad had said to me when I changed my major to theater, um, you know, I'm just so worried because I don't think you have the skin, you know, the thick enough skin wow. uh, to handle show business. And I remember probably my first two years in it just uh, plowing through out of spite, sure. you know, just to prove him wrong. But he said, uh, if you ever change your mind, um, I will be willing to uh, pay for you to go to medical school. So I suppose I did have that, but I had zero desire to go back and, and do that. That, and you know that's uh, and that's a great I, I love that story it's a great example of you know I am I am a I love mindfulness um, I preach it to pretty much all of my clients I practice it but I have this book that I picked up on one of the audible daily deals called the upside to your dark side or have you heard of that mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. Um, and it's it kind of speaks to what what you how you use what your dad said I mean it's saying you know it's okay if, uh, if for the in, you know during the divorce you all of a sudden want to get the six pack abs. Um, if that's what right. mo- motivates you, you know, then go for it. And, and, yeah. you know, and I, and I, and that's helped a lot of clients, I think, because, uh, sometimes they feel like they shouldn't want to, um, do something for these reasons that aren't, you know, completely from within. So, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think if the overall goal is personal growth and yeah. being more spiritual, finding more peace, uh, being a better citizen, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, maybe the little uh, narcissistic uh, side routes along the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. give your give yourself those. Yeah. Um, and and I try, and I always cram that back into my emotional baseline theory. If that bit of self care raises your emotional baseline up, um, even just a little bit, you're going to make better decisions. You know, from a higher plane. So yeah, um, I'll kind of take that. Hey, I want to talk about okay, the mental illness happy hour over th- what 351, 352 episodes at this point. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. It's amazing, and and I, you know, I, I found it early. I had become a fan of yours. I think on uh, I heard you on the Adam Carolla show, and uh, maybe even uh, Never Not Funny, or um, you know some of those kind of things, and then find your podcast, and and so you. 
have interviewed comedians, actors, musicians, doctors, therapists, psychologists, uh, people who have escaped cults, attempted suicide, hear voices. I mean, you name it, right? Um, mm-hmm. you've, you've covered it. And uh, so, and I know, I feel, I feel like I'm now, I'll get clients that have already been to a couple of other therapists and they come in that first session and they think, man, I don't want to have to go over the story again. <laughs> but, but, you know, are you okay kind of telling me a little bit about what, what really got you excited about the podcast and, and how you got it yeah. started? Okay. Yeah. Well, I went off my meds in uh, late 2010 and um, normally when I would try to go off my meds within a month or two, I would know whether or not it was a good idea. And of okay. course it was always not a good idea. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and for me, uh, you know, it's a personal decision for everybody, but, um, I, so I tried again and, and, um, after two, three months, I felt great and I thought I don't need them anymore. Mm. And then at about five months, I started, uh, feeling hopeless again. Mm. But I believed that it was my life circumstances. I couldn't see that it was the depression. And I started just thinking about suicide all the time and feeling like my life was really over and I will never be able to experience joy or peace ever again. And then one day it hit me, oh my God, this is the depression coming back. And I thought, wow, I believe that mental illness is a real thing. I go to therapy, psychiatrist, support groups, mm-hmm. and I was fooled by it. Somebody has to talk about this, but in a way that isn't kind of dry, academic, or yes. pre- precious and new agey. And, uh, and I thought, you know, the template of support groups or just conversations between two friends where one minute you're laughing at the you know most screwed up dark joke, and then the next minute you're both vulnerable and, you know, crying. Yeah. And, uh, I thought if I can create, uh, a podcast that kind of gives that vibe, uh, that would bring a lot of comfort to people because I'm not a professional. I can't give people the answers, but what I can give them is the feeling that they're not alone. You can tell people they're not alone. But when they hear a story, and I experience this in support groups, when I hear somebody's story, I feel I'm not alone. And there's a difference between, as you know, the emotions and the intellect. And the so often, you know, you go to see a psychiatrist and it's all intellectual for them. You know, a good yes. therapist, as you know, will help you process your emotions. I'll help you feel seen and heard and comforted. And yes, there will be an intellectual component in there where they say, you know, here's what might be going on, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately it's about processing uh, emotions and you, you need shoulders to, to lean on. And I thought, I, I think I could be that. I think I could balance the dark and the light, uh, in a way that, um, might be compelling to, to people and be helpful. And I had no idea if it would work. I didn't intend to ever make a dime from it. Uh-huh. Uh, I was still doing dinner in a movie and still doing, going on the road and doing stand up, And it just kind of, uh, took off. And I realized, wow, I don't want to be on TV anymore. Uh, but fortunately, the industry agreed with me. <laughs> <laughs> you were using the, the concept of the secret. You were kind of making that happen, right, Paul? Yeah. 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 Um, 
and <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I had no desire to go do comedy clubs anymore. Okay, uh, I still do my Republican character every once in a while, but that's not really um, kind of the act that I would go do in comedy clubs. Sure. Uh, and uh, I thought this is where I'm meant to be. This is uh, this feels like everything I've gone through in my life uh, was necessary for me to be able to be this host and do this show and have these insights and provide this uh, kind of safe space and this empathy uh, and this humor. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, so that's kind of how it came came about. I, you know, I started it in March of 2011. And it's been amazing. I mean, and I think, you know, as a professional, I go to it when I see an expert on there or a client that's similar to what I've dealt with. There have been a couple of times where maybe I've gotten behind on the pod and then I will go search for even a particular um, mental illness that, that you've interviewed somebody about. I mean, so, you know, professionals, I think, go to it. Uh, I've sent plenty of clients there. And uh, and I just love what you were saying earlier about I I, I like to say um, in sessions, we've got logical brain and we've got emotional brain and they're often on the same bus and who are we going to let drive and, yeah. you know, and where, and sometimes I'm saying, you know, uh, emotional brain needs to sit in the back and not like where the cool kids sit, but like, you know, uh, on the seat with the little bump in the side and where we can't mm-hmm. put his feet up and, and he needs to be quiet or it's, it's sometimes they can even kind of, uh, drive together. But I mean, that, yeah. that battle of logical and emotional brain is going just all the time. All the time, all yeah. the time, um, and um, uh, that you know, my, one of my biggest fears when I started it was that I was just going to get a shitstorm from mental health professionals saying, oh. "What are you doing? Wow. What you do not belong in, you know, this arena." Um, and so every episode, you know, I say, uh, you know, this is a um, place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Uh, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. It is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. So I figured if I could put that out there, um, then people would know where I was coming from, that I wasn't trying to fix people, that I wasn't trying to pretend to have all the answers no it's and it's you've done a beautiful job i mean you really have and that's that's why this is i mean what a treat to to talk to you about this too Um, thank you i have to ask you too so when you get stopped on the street are people either are you getting more of they they are going to tell you a joke or are they going to tell you about a problem a problem it is okay yeah okay and was that a transition over time i mean is the yeah yeah yeah. Um, also, you know, in Los Angeles, people tend to stop you less uh, because there's so many um, people that uh, are recognizable. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I somebody came up to me in a coffee shop the other day, and uh, you know, it's somebody that I know from uh, the business, uh-huh. and uh, and she was having uh, problems with a daughter uh, who had just been recently diagnosed with a borderline personality disorder oh, wow. and she was acting out and such and such. And I, uh, said, I, I know that it's an incredibly, um, uh, complex, uh, personality disorder. It's really intense for the person experiencing it. It's really baffling for the family members and the loved ones. Um, I highly recommend from what I've heard, um, you 
her um, getting dialectical behavior therapy mm -hmm. and you guys doing family sessions so that you can learn how her brain is working and she can learn how to communicate what's happening in her brain to you guys so that um, things don't uh, escalate when there's, uh, you know, yeah. intense feelings. And I bumped into her about six months later and uh, she said it's it's helped so much. Wow. And she found a great therapist who has helped give uh, her child um, ways of expressing what it is that she's feeling so that people can understand her and vice versa. And that was such a good feeling. Uh, you know, I don't think of myself as the solution. I think of myself as the cheerleader for you guys, the people in the trenches with the, yeah. with the education and the expertise to, you know, grind it out every day. I have so much respect for what, what you guys do. Oh, that's kind. Okay, so I have so many things. I want to be respectful for your time, too. Um, I, I'm kind of curious about... Uh, just from a mindfulness standpoint, because you talk about that quite a bit as well, I still will. I feel like when I'm when I'm preaching mindfulness to clients that I need to get my robe on and I, I'm bald, yeah. right? you know, little attachment ponytail, and we're going to sit on the floor and and yeah. and I kind of have this overall feel that about 25% of my clients are going to just completely tune me out. Uh, maybe 25% yeah. are going to try it a little bit and they're going to tell me that the concepts are you know, um, pretty good. And then, or no, actually that's my 50% and then 25% will embrace it and, you know, say it's the greatest thing ever. And it, yeah. why, you know, what is your mindfulness practice and, and how has that benefited you? Well, you know, I, I like to joke that a lot of times meditation is just me thinking about myself with my eyes closed. <laughs> um, cause honestly, some days that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, but I, uh, somebody in one of my recovery uh, groups uh, had learned transcendental meditation, mm. and I had noticed a difference in her. She used to be wound really tight, talking a mile a minute, and she seemed to have slowed down. And I was like, what's changed? And she said, I learned transcendental meditation. And I said, you know, how, uh, how can I learn it? And she said, well, as luck would have it, um, I've just been certified uh, to teach it. Oh. And so I went to her house two days in a row and uh, she gave me a mantra mm -hmm. and told me, you know, how you want to sit um, and, you know, you want to have your shoes off and you want to be resting, sitting upright, but, you know, not stiff, relaxed, comfortable. You could be in a chair um, and, and you just uh, think of your mantra. You just, in your mind, you say your mantra. And it's usually just a, a nonsensical phrase um, in, um, I don't know if it's Sanskrit or Hindu or whatever, but uh -huh. it, 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 it has no meaning to it. So your brain is able to wind down. It, okay. it keeps your brain from um, uh, doing the dance it does from jumping from one uh, thought to the next at, at light speed. And of course your mind's going to wander. And she yeah. said, when it wanders, just bring it back to your mantra. It's normal. It doesn't mean you're a bad meditator. Don't assign any meaning to it. And after a couple of days, I began to notice a difference. And I began to notice that I didn't feel like, you know, you know, the, the, the clock in the opening of 60 minutes. Yes. That I used to feel like that in everything I did. Like I was three steps 
behind the universe and I had to catch up to everybody. Uh And there was this sense of rushing in almost everything I did. And, um, and all of a sudden it wasn't like that as much. And I realized, wow, there, there is something to this. So I do it, uh, I do it every morning. Um, I've gotten away from doing it, uh, in the afternoon. I really kind of wish I, I would get back into doing it twice a day, but that's how it works for me. And it, it helps introduce me to what I'm putting emphasis on. Um, because you know, if, if I'm getting away from my mantra nine times in a row over the same thing, yeah. then it's hard for me to disagree with the, you know, the truth that, wow, you're really worried about this upcoming thing, uh, or et cetera. Okay. And, and so do you, have you, uh, and I don't know TM as well as I know. So I do headspace, um, kind of a, you know, good old, uh, mm-hmm. just turn to the breath. Um, but in, in headspace, there's a big component of just the awareness. I just tried it. Oh, did I just you? Tried it okay. Last week. What'd, yeah. you, what'd you think? You know, I liked it. It doesn't work for me because okay. I don't like uh, hearing somebody's voice when I'm meditating. Okay. Um, but if you don't mind hearing somebody's voice, I think it's tremendous. The guy has a soothing voice. Yeah. Um, it's not too precious. I think that's where a lot of people get turned off from Eastern stuff is yeah. it's just been polluted by these stereotypes of people in robes and yeah. gurus abusing their power and um, – it's it's really nothing more than just clearing your mind and and chilling. Can, can I tell you, I don't want to, I was about to say the book, but I don't want to, if people love it, but I, again, another one of these audible um, download of the days, it was a, a book about mindfulness and the whole book, I mean, I stuck with it for about an hour, but it was basically, hey, when you're driving in the car and you stop at a stoplight, that's a time to turn to the breath. You know, when you, when you see a squirrel on the side of the road, that's a time to turn to the breath. When you, and that was the whole book. I mean, everything was just everything in your life. Turn to the breath, turn to the breath. And yeah, I mean, I get it, but in the same breath, in the same breath, I, I, I can see why that would kind of give it a bad, uh, a bad rap. Um, yeah, but I also have to tell you, I was at a, I was at a NBA, um, summer league game in Vegas and I've got this kid behind me just hammering my chair, right? His feet are just going to town. And, and, oh I, and you know what, I just listened to this book and I'd made fun of the book and, and I turn around and I do the super passive aggressive look at the dad to kind of say, yeah. Hey, can you knock it off? And then dad's staring at his phone, of course. And so just joke, <laughs> you know, jokingly, I tell myself, um, every time this kid hammers the back of my chair is a time to turn to my breathing, you know? And I'm even like, yeah, right. Yeah. And then, and so he starts doing it and I just start going in through the nose, out through the mouth. And, and I swear to you, it kind of worked. So then I had to stop making the, wow. I know. Right. Um, but so that, that, wow. that was uh, the ultimate test. And, uh, and, and then, you know, at some point we got up and left, but the, for that moment, it was beautiful. It really yeah. was. Um, and isn't that really what life is about is just finding a way to cope with the moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And not letting your mind get away from you. And, and that's, so that's what I was going to ask too. So on, in headspace, they do a lot with just awareness and just observing the mm-hmm. thoughts in your brain and not giving them any um, significance. I mean, is that a part of the TM as well? The transcendental meditation? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Not judging your thoughts, yes. just letting them flow downstream. Okay. And, and not to force a, you know, a topic into here, but, um, at the beginning, I think of the, the Greg Barrett podcast, which was hilarious, which I loved. Um, you know, I loved that you, you know, I did a special pod on the, um, tragedy in Vegas and how to talk to your teens and process trauma. And basically I was trying to tell parents to let your teenagers have a voice and don't shut down their 
their thoughts and don't make them feel stupid about them and, you know, that sort of thing. But I, you know, I actually yeah. went back and, and typed up what you said, which I loved, um, where you said uh, the media essentially um, talking a lot but not doing a lot to address the core issues. And But you talked about um, that how we wait until something awful happens and there's this flurry of observations, nothing concrete. Um, the, the media pumps out sentimentality porn. And, um, but, but you said, you know, get underneath how it's happening. Can't take mental health out of the equation. But I loved what you summed it up with was, um, we don't teach kids or parents how to deal with their emotions. And a lot of people don't understand that there are not bad thoughts or emotions, but it's what it's, um, what you go, what you do with them. Yeah. Right. So, and I Uh, think, I think that so many people don't, that's the part they don't necessarily understand. So what, what does that mean to you? Well, I, you know, so many times I'll I'll get uh, I'll read a survey or I'll have a guest who shares that when they were a kid, you know, their parents would shame them for crying. Yeah. You know, they would tell them, "Don't feel that. Don't feel that. we well, we can't control what we're feeling. We can only choose how to how to express it." Mm-hmm. Um, or they'll tell you, "Don't think that," which is the exact opposite. You know, yes. it's 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 as you know, it's one of the ways that intrusive thought syndrome can Absolutely. come in because. It, giving more weight to it. It's just like the child who you're constantly uh, praising their, their, uh, their body every day. You know, you are pushing them towards an eating disorder because you are over emphasizing the importance of their, their phys- physical body yeah. in, in terms of their self-worth. And it's, it's really uh, about prioritizing and learning how to express. Um, but it, we live in the dark ages emotionally. And um, it is, we like to think that we're so modern because, you know, we can watch TV on our phone, but we don't even know how to, exp- we, we were taught algebra and we weren't taught how to say, I'm feeling something or yeah. uh, a healthy way of coping with it. Um, we don't teach kids, uh, you know, what does abuse look like? Uh, so kids grow up with an abusive parent thinking, well, I must really be a horrible person. And then they internalize that. And then you have to spend 20 years in therapy undoing that thing that if you had known you would have identified early on, um, you know, I've got an abusive parent. Um, maybe there's somebody else I need to talk to or, um, whatever. Uh, just yeah. are the options. The options are so limited for, for people, um, dealing with an overwhelming life. And I mean, my God, you throw in then uh, all the stuff that's happening in our world. Yeah. It's a pressure cooker. It's a pressure cooker. So, so, of course, you know, uh, we need a way to be able to express anything that's going through our head, right? And then not having that judgment with it. Um, I had a new teenager client today, and I love, you know, I get to make this little little speech that uh, kind of, think, puts them a little bit at ease. And it's, uh, you know, and I'm not a big all-or-nothing statement guy, but I have never had a teenager that hasn't told me that their parents have said, hey, buddy, I want you to be able to come and tell me anything. You know, you you come to me with any any problem. I'm, I'm here for you. And then, you know, a week later, the kid says, uh, hey, I got an F or I, I smoked pot or whatever. And then the parent just goes off the, you know, just goes insane. And then what does that teach the kid? It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not bringing you anything again. You know, I can't trust that. That's not a safe place. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, oh, go ahead. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so many parents make it about themselves. Yes, exactly, right? And and, and whether it's what they, they – and I use this phrase. I got to, you know, this will get my – almost probably the explicit thing on my podcast. But I, I say, you know, when you get you, – you don't want to get should on, right? So people are, right. you, you should do this, you should do this. And and yeah. when you start feeling should on, then the one of the natural reactions is to push back and – Mm-hmm. Uh, man, what what a what a what a bad message to teach! You know, it's instead of listening to what somebody else is is thinking or feeling or what to do with that. Um, yeah. I, after the uh, after the uh, Columbine thing uh, yeah. many years ago, somebody was interviewing uh, Marilyn Manson, and and they said, you know, if you were the parents of those two kids that had done that, um, you know, um, and and you had found out before they did it, you know, what would you have told them? Uh-huh. And he said, I wouldn't have told them anything. I would have listened. Oh, that's, that's beautiful, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's beautiful. Um, hey, I know you're, you're almost at, you have a hockey game tonight, right? I do. Yeah. I do. I, I love, I just, I have to tell you, my, I have a daughter that did some ice skating lessons and the hockey guys would come in after. There's a hockey arena just a couple miles away from my office. And when you guys put on all that stuff, you're, you're giants. Right. It's, yeah, it's and and it's heavy. You know, my bag of equipment probably weighs fifty pounds. Um, wow. So yeah, you're about two inches taller and about fifty pounds heavier. Um, but uh, it's such a great sport. I love it. Well, and so then, and I was thinking about back to when I'm, you know, kind of talking about this emotional baseline. I mean, is that does that fall under self care for you? How often do you play hockey, and is it something that brings your baseline up? Oh, absolutely. It's one of the most important things in my life. I play two to three times a week. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, it's also social for me because it's the same group of guys. Um, uh, and uh, it's there's something about um, getting together with a group of people with a shared goal and supporting each other that I really love. Um you know, then you throw in, you're getting endorphins, mm-hmm. you get to express yourself physically, you get to have positive feelings about your body instead of negative feelings. Um, you, you get to learn how to lose with dignity. Um, I have had so many insights during or after hockey games. You know, one that I had recently is um, we were losing like 10 to two and I was taking it personally. Okay. And I realized, you know, the way the universe works is sometimes you're the one in the sunshine and the other time, you know, you're the one, uh, holding the door open for the other person to, to go in the sunshine and to expect to be the one who always gets to go outside in the sunshine is, um, unrealistic. And so I looked up in the stands and somebody was really excited that this guy was scoring goals. And I thought maybe that guy had had a horrible week. You know, maybe he and his girlfriend had been fighting and they just made up and she came out to see his hockey game for the first time. And they're feeling closer than ever. And they're having a magical night. That's okay. That is uh, that is nice. uh, Nice shift in perspective, because I I, I think I would just want to (laughs) win. It's a it's a battle. It is a yeah. battle, Tony. It yeah. is a battle between my ego and because one of the ways that that one of the few ways my dad expressed interest and joy yeah. towards me was when I would win pitching in uh, baseball. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that something about that is, and I'm afraid of disappointing my teammates and being talked about. 
uh, you know, oh my God, we got to get him off the team, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Hey, do you, uh, a couple more minutes if you're okay. I'm curious, you know, I wrote down a couple of my favorite episodes and uh, um, Maria Bamford, I mean, that I, I remember Amazing. that, right? I mean, and, and that is just one of the first times where I really felt like, and I know it can sound silly, but wow, I, you know, you, you kind of from the, uh, from the outside, you you just assume that she has everything funny and, yeah. and just you know. But boy, she talked about such deep suicidal thoughts and being yeah. you know institutionalized. And I just that was one of those where I've been able to point a few people to that episode in particular, and uh, just how amazing that was. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and she and she shines a light on it, which can always always help. Um, you know, yeah, it, it um, it's so helpful to talk about just today. You know, I've been going through it's too long to go into, but I've been dealing with a lot of shame uh, mm-hmm. lately. And um, and I've just been on the phone talking with people. And there's probably two or three people that I talked to today that are going through the same thing. Wow. You know, just going to that. I'm not good enough. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it helped. It really helped to, to talk about it. Um it just uh, it d- didn't make it go away, but it, it took some of the power uh, out of it, and I felt less alone, kind of like what my podcast hopefully does. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and I have to say as well, I, um, one of the, I remember one of the episodes that stuck with me the most, too, was um, it was uh, it was Dr. David Hirohama. Do, do you remember? Yeah, that, right? great episode. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where I've got a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of good old family folks listening to my podcast, and, I mean, the the – that is not one I would necessarily say if you're not a big um, fan of uh, talking about mental health, that might be a tough one to jump into. But he basically worked with um, rapists and child molesters in a lockdown facility outside of Kalinga, right? Yeah. Um, and first of all, is Kalinga, isn't that the place where all the cows are? Or is that just yeah, the Yeah, the smelliest place on earth. So are, is it your, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't go back and listen to this, but is there a possibility that in your podcast was where I first heard the name Cowschwitz? Or <laughs> it, it, it would have been somebody else, okay? Uh, because I don't recall hearing that before. But I have a terrible memory. But okay. I don't think I used that term. But somebody else might have. Yeah. Okay. All right. I had heard that one though. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and that one even too. When you're driving through Colinga, even if you have the, I mean, we will put the recirculated air on. You know, 15 yeah. miles ahead, it doesn't matter. You're going to be smelling yeah. that stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Koalinga Co- will kill a good mood unlike <laughs> anything else. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. Uh, I, I was one time driving with a buddy, and the window was down. He's asleep. His mouth's open. And I wasn't about to wake him up either. And I was willing to take that one just to be able to for him to wake up halfway through that and experience you know, a mouthful of that Koalinga. <laughs> uh, it was beautiful. Like, I'll never forget that. But, in, but I mean, I think, uh, if you, do you remember much about that episode? Or, or what was that? Yeah, you know, what, I do. Yeah. I, so I do. What was that like? to interview someone like that. I mean, that was the part for me where fascinating. He, yeah. Okay. Fascinating. I've always been, uh, drawn to, uh, uh darkness. Yeah. Um, I, and, and oddly I find comfort in hearing the stories of other people, um, uh, not hurting people, but seeing that other people, um, have it far worse yeah. in terms of their dark thoughts or their dark urges. So in a way it's kind of selfish. It's, it's like sometimes I'll watch a Hitler documentary to feel better about myself, which sure. is so, so narcissistic, yeah. but 
it, it just reassures me that I'm not the worst person in the world, that my problems aren't the worst problems in the world, uh, because I need that perspective every day. It's why I go to support groups. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I do. And, and, you know, I thought what was uh, this and here's where my train of thought went with that was when he talked about basically needing to get out of that job because of the yeah. emotional toll. And, and then my train of thought takes me to, you know, I, I have a, a nice practice. I love what I do, but sometimes at the end of a day, I send my wife a text and I just say, I'm stuck, you know, because, uh, trying yeah. to process a lot emotionally. And I, I'm curious, how has that been for you? I mean, there's this great feeling of the service you're providing, which I am so grateful for. And so are my clients, but what's that like for you? Uh, it can get a little overwhelming sometimes, so I always try to make sure to uh, not let my my battery get uh, too drained. Um, uh, the the emails sometimes can be kind of overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, sometimes people don't um, uh, have a lot of restraint in um, writing what they're going through which I understand some people so desperately want to be heard and seen and felt and understood. I'm one of them. So I, I don't fault them, but from my end, you know, when you get 10 emails in a row where somebody is listing, you know, five pages of trauma, um, and they're losing hope, um, I can only take so much. Sure. So I try to respond to every one, but there reaches a point where, um, I have to start reading quickly and my responses have to get shorter, but I try to let them know that they're not alone and that it's really important that they seek help and not try to deal with this uh, on, on their own. Um, and I don't feel guilty for doing that because I know if I'm drained, I, I, I'll be uh, you know, worthless as a host and a friend and et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Hey, so I've done uh, uh, an episode on the, um, you know, these uh, inappropriate thought syndrome. Is it, mm-hmm. is it bad for me to admit that while you were saying that, I wanted to throw a joke in there about, do you ever want to just reply with unsubscribe? I mean, is that bad? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that bad? That's fantastic. Okay. Um, that is fantastic. But, but I don't say that. Out, I didn't say that out loud, right? Um, no. God, I just had one <laughs> the other day. I, and I'm trying to remember when it was. And I was like, oh, I have to share this with somebody. Yeah, at least once a week, I think of a joke that uh, I cannot share publicly, but is so hilarious. Oh, and there's man. about six or eight people that I know would love it. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, you've got, you've got my email address now. I, anytime right. send that. I mean, that, right. that, those things go through my head all the time. I mean, they do yes. all the time, you know, and I think, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Hey, I'll let you go. I know you've got a hockey yeah. game to go to, but I, yeah. I cannot even thank you enough. I was, you know, uh, if I, if, uh, and I will wait, I will not, uh, uh, but maybe in a, a couple of years, if I get back on, I'd love to do a fear off, a love off. I mean, those things oh, that you do, they're I'd so, love that. they're, they're, they're love so that. great. Um, but, but your podcast is, is done so much good and I really appreciate it. And it's helped me become a better clinician and it's, uh, and it's just helped so many of my clients, um, normalize a lot sure. of what they're going through. And so I, I really appreciate you doing the work and, and I know that can sound trite, but uh, please let me know if I can ever help with anything for you or any of the people that you interact with. 
Uh, I, I really appreciate that. You know, if you're uh, ever passing through uh, L.A., or are you based in L.A.? Uh, I'm actually in Sacramento, but I am down there quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me know. Uh, next time you're coming through and schedule permitting, uh, we should have you come on for an episode and, and uh, maybe talk about uh, sexually compulsive behavior or some other stuff. That would be a blast. I mean, that would. Yeah. Uh, that sounded kind of funny, right? Hey, that'd be awesome, right? Yeah. Let's talk about child molesting. <laughs> exactly. Let's do it. Okay. I can't wait. <laughs> hey, Paul, and I'll, I'll uh, and I'm going to, you know, of course, Mental Illness Happy Hour, um, people can find you there, mentalpod.com. Um, any other places? Uh, that, that's the main stuff. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. My and uh, And good luck tonight at the hockey game. All right. Thanks, okay. John. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. flying past our heads and out the other end the pressures of the daily grind is wonderful elastic waste and rubber ghost i'm floating past the midnight hour they push aside the things that matter most And hearts you broke the pain to mind.